I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships, creates language for what motivates us, and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram's a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram Ninja. Hello. Oh, man. That came out a little sing-songy. I'm not exactly sure why. I added some vibrato <laughs> at the end of that. There, we, we're talking about things worth singing about. <laughs> That's what it was. Today is our quick introduction to subtypes. Something that we have held off on for quite a while. Our, our quick introduction to one of the most complicated aspects of the Enneagram. So in doing the research, there's like some folks that start here. Sure. I, I Okay. I don't know why, but <laughs> the reason they start here is they save the nine types for later and they just focus on the instincts. Huh. Okay. I think it's easier to, to identify and talk about. And then once you know your instinct, then uh, then they start talking about your motive. Sure. So anyway, I thought that was that was kind of like, yeah. Oh, that's a thing. That's a backdoor way to get into this. Yeah, I guess. For, for those of you who have listened to us for a while, you'll know that we kind of reference it, and the only thing we generally say about subtypes is, hey, wait five years. We just wait. Wait five years. So this is a primer at best for those of you who have waited five years. <laughs> yep. Uh, but for, for me, just jumping into this material, there's lots here I don't know mm -hmm. and lots to discover. Uh, perhaps one of the reasons you wait five years is it's like you really live in your type for a while and then you can open a whole new door onto it and give you something really enjoyable, productive, insightful to, you know, to extend that that reading. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the things about the waiting five years, like it, part of that is is for me and for my understanding of, of why this is taught. It's because like you really need to get in touch with your primary motive and and it's really easy to see some of these instincts as different from your primary motive but but you have to see it all through your your main type and yeah this this just complicates that so so if you're hearing these terms for the first time we're going to be talking about instincts and subtypes these are kind of some advanced we think fairly advanced enneagram Wisdom, it, like all Enneagram wisdom, it's kind of being discovered right now. Right. And there's some great work out there. There's a lot of not so good work yeah. out there. <laughs> this podcast isn't looking to be, we're not looking to be the experts here. Right. I suppose what I'm looking to do is say something like, here's the diving board from which TJ and I are diving. You know, this is the door through which we're entering when we come to the topic. Yeah. Oftentimes with Enneagram, just getting some basic language to get your head around what's going on can be really valuable. Some, how do you jump off into this topic? And so that's what we're here, here to do. Yep. Quick intro to, to subtypes and instincts. Knowing you and me, this quick intro will be somewhere in the two and a half hour range. <laughs> oh, I also want to say uh, that 
a, a lot of teachers, a lot of branches of Enneagram study use, uh, will assign the same meaning to subtype and instincts. And we'll explain why we don't later. But but we're talking about the same topic. We're just going to use those two words to mean different things. So stay tuned. There it is. I suppose, yeah, here's, here's where we're going. We're going to talk about three rules of subtyping. Going to define instincts and subtyping, why they're different. Going to talk about some practical uses of this stuff. And one of the things, actually, we do talk about subtyping sometimes is that your subtype changes right might discuss that a little bit more in depth than we have in the past yeah well the first rule of subtyping is you need to wait five years i got thoughts on this why do you wait five years on this uh well because like i said a minute ago the this subject makes everything else a little bit more complicated it it muddies the water and and if you don't really have your bearings, if you don't have some basic understanding of, of your type and and what what your type does and, and movements and, and stuff like that, then you'll get completely lost in a lot of the subtype discussion and you'll make false assumptions. And and like I, I know a lot of people who when they took the test online, the test told them what their subtype was, and that is how they identify themselves. And actually, they don't know anything about what they're talking about because subtypes are so complicated. So the, the idea of waiting five years, for me, is about really getting invested and doing some work and really like having this material, having, having Enneagram study be something that that you is is inside you is is part of you now so that when this much more complicated thing comes along you can understand it a little bit better and appropriately apply it it's like like you don't study trigonometry in elementary school because you have to learn some basic things first you don't study trigonometry in middle school typically because you still have a lot of learning that you need to do before you can get to the place where trigonometry even makes sense i agree some of the topics like wings, subtypes, even the arrows, I think should be left for a few years. The things for me, and this is more because you need to jump into Enneagram and find some stuff that really helps you now. And the high side, low side of uh, your number, really living in your number and naming your motive, uh, elevating and talking about your repressed center talking about your shadow, those are the places I think really need that first attention. Yeah. So rule one, wait five years. Second rule is actually what TJ said, adding subtypes makes everything messy. Uh, some of the literature I was reading on this immediately jumps into there are 27 types if you add subtypes. Right. Or if you really do it correctly, there's 54 types. Right. Wait a minute. I thought you said there were nine types. And now it's messy. <laughs> <laughs> So if you, if, if you wait a bit, then when we start talking about stacking or sequencing, you know, this, this can make sense. But for now, that might be, yeah, it, just know that things can get messy if you don't really have a good foundation. Right. My last rule, and I'm curious if this works for you, but I think that subtypes aren't about you. I think if you're actually healthy in your number, knowing your subtype and being able to identify other people's subtypes because I think you actually can very easily type other people's subtypes if you're aware of this topic or 
maybe not easily, but it it can be a helpful kind of it, you know one sentence question for most people. I think knowing about subtypes really helps you to love people in terms of how they want to be loved. Mm. It's about caring for others around you because you understand who you are and perhaps you understand who they are. As is often said, knowing your type isn't an excuse for bad behavior. And that's especially true, I think, once you get into subtype work. Yeah. Yeah, the the way that these instincts sort of push our energies it it affects how we interact with other people and it affects the way our relationships uh, uh navigate and and deal with with complications and and just being together and uh normal regular stuff and and knowing knowing the subtype and and how how that subtype that instinct interacts with your partner or your business partner or your children or whatever else like that that can go a long way to do some good uh, for your relationship i know unless of course you're using it to just excuse your bad behavior i'm self-preserving so i need to be alone no that's that's not a good way to <laughs> to use this information but but knowing that this is this is where you're comfortable and this is where your other is comfortable and and how does that dynamic work this goes a long way to do a lot of good for knowing how to interact with each other and love each other better yep, yep. for the, just to give a quick example some of us really thrive when we're in a big group of people mm -hmm. and say something really awful 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 happens inviting a person into the big group of people it might be a really healing thing for that person. Right. But there's some of us that really don't thrive in big groups of people. Right. Something awful happens. The thing we don't want is to go out with a bunch of people. We want to sit down with just the person we care about for a minute and just talk through the thing that's awful that happened. Right. You know, those sorts of things, using this in those sorts of ways can be really helpful. And we'll unpack that. But just as a quick and dirty example, that, uh, that's something that struck me. So three rules. Second, we got to define some stuff. So first is instincts, and second is subtyping. These are the two big terms we'll use. You want to take a shot at instincts? Instincts. Uh, yeah, this is how, like, think about, like, animal instincts like the, these are subconscious drives and and when we talk about instincts we're talking about like the the energy that we use the way that we spend our energy trying to get our primary motive so like each type has a primary motivation this is this is the way that we see the world this is the thing that we want and our instincts are about how we get that thing a lot of folks, I think this comes from Chestnut mostly, uh, Beatrice Chestnut, when defining instincts, wants to really tie them to evolution and to biology. And she says, when trying to get like the primary resources, food, shelter, safety, um, companionship, all animals want these things because they're about survival. And it's almost like an animal has an intuitive, so human beings have an intuitive way of saying, I'm going to get survival by finding my place in a larger group. That would be one. A second would be I'm going to find survival by bonding with another very strong or capable, supportive person. That'd be a second way. Or third is survival is about me. I need to trust myself and the resources that I have. And those three ways of being 
move into how we become social animals. So, so my, my social energy is primarily about being in a wider group. My social energy is primarily about me connecting with another person. My social energy is primarily me caring about me. And those are the three instincts as I see them. The, yeah. the names that are generally used are social instinct, sexual instinct, and self-preserving instinct. I think we should stick with those. We can yeah. unpack them with other language later. but They're, they're pretty well established. Yeah. Plus, you just love alliteration, so... I do. They're my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't. It's a lie. Instincts are going to form our patterns of behavior. How, like how we get what we need most just flows out into how we are as social people. And uh, they create uh, the instincts are kind of the foundation for our social personality. So, So some of us feel really comfortable in the wider group. Some of us feel most comfortable when we're just with another person, some of us feel most comfortable when we're taking care of ourselves first and then engaging the world second. And that's, and that's how our social self is expressed. And that's part of our personality and it informs our motive and how we get our motive. And so I love TJ's line there that how your energy is spent, uh, that instincts are about how your energy is spent getting to your motive. And I do want to say that we we need to draw a line here. There is some overlap, but we are not talking about introvert and extrovert. That's a different right. kind of thing. And the easiest way I can think of to understand introvert, extrovert is like, this is how you recharge. This is how you gain your energy either by yourself or with other people. Some people, you know, it's they build a head of steam when they're out and about. And some people are ambiverts and... Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how your energy is spent in the best ways to get your motive. So let's talk about these in turn. One of the better illustrations, I've I've forgotten where I've heard this, but it was really excellent, was that there's almost like a temperature of people's personality when you engage them. Some people come across as very cool. Some people come across as kind of intense and, and very hot in your conversations. Uh, some people are just a warmer presence and that lines up with each of these instincts. So for example, those who have a dominant social instinct often come across as very cool. They are understanding and intelligent about their place in the wider group. They're trying to find their, their places for participation and that allows them to just float above the conversations to, to offer what they have to offer in very insightful, direct ways when necessary. But generally, they feel just really good with a bunch of people. And that coolness of they walk into the room and they feel comfortable, it's a good way to understand those with a dominant social instinct. Different from those with a dominant sexual instinct who often come across as hot. When you have conversations with these sorts of people, it's almost like you are the only thing that matters. Your eyes connect. There is an, an, I don't want to call it just an intensity, but there's very much an energy that it's just the two of us. Sometimes this sort of person who has a dominant sexual instinct will kind of pull us to the side, want to have that one-on-one conversation, want to go for depth. And so the hotness is is of that sort. And then those who have a self-preserving instinct come across just as, as warm. They are caring for themselves. You're great. I'm great. They're, but their energy is first and foremost 
about preserving what they have. Yeah, I think that um, it might be the case that the best way to understand this is to find out other people and and like like find out their dominant subtype and then apply this kind of language to your interactions with them because like like Jeff is a very the understanding the idea of a hot sexual sub instinct understanding the idea of the sexual instinct coming across as hot if you've ever had a an actual conversation with Jeff it makes sense because it's like he's in it and he's he's like he wants to solve things and like the the intensity of the conversation is 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 palpable it's noticeable whereas there's there's other people who like it's not that they're cold it's not that they don't care but it's clear that they care about something other than you and like that that coolness of 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 somebody who's instincts are about the group and about how we all fit together and and what is my place in it but also my primary motive I, w- I want that to apply to the group that we're a part of they're not going to single people out they're not going to be like engaged in the way that someone would be if you describe them even warm or hot like this and then the warmness is like like inviting but not Okay, accepting but not necessarily inviting is like you can come here, but I don't care if you do. Like that, that the self protectiveness is like, like this is someone that it's okay to be around, but they're not necessarily expecting there to be an intensity there. One last quick footnote: I'm I'm surprised it lasted this long. When talking about the sexual instinct, this is not about physical sex. This is uh, another way of saying those with a sexual instinct want to bond with another with the one other so these right. those who are dominant in sexual instinct prefer one-on-one relationships and so those are two other ways this instinct is often talked about it's the bonding instinct or the one-on-one instinct those are interchangeable uh but yeah we're not talking about sex it might be about sex but it's not by default about sex right unless of course you ask you know freud or young then, then it might be about sex, but that's not what we're talking about. So all of us have these instincts in our <laughs> DJ just has this little wry smile on the side. That was, that was good. All of us have these instincts. All of us have a social personality. All of us have kind of a preference, a dominant preference for how we want to engage socially. When that is put into Enneagram language, then it becomes a subtype. So the word subtype is more about saying, oh, hey, this is an interesting idea about how our social energy works. Let's fit it into our system. So some people will say, I'm a social Enneagram 9, or I'm a sexual 1, or I'm a self-preserving 7. And that would be a way of saying, here's my social energy paired with my motive. And so that's the subtype, right. as it were, is, is how your social energy relates to your motive. Um, got thoughts on on just defining subtypes? Yeah, I think all of the, the subtypes, so like when, when you add this flavor, when you add this energy and, and how we spend and how we try to get toward our primary motive, especially in, in a 
socialized society. Like, like we are social creatures and, and we interact with the wider world in a certain way. And, and so when you add this flavor in, it, it sort of, it changes things. It, it makes, makes the expression of that type a little bit different, but it's all still like, we have to remember that it's all still through our primary motive. Now, here's where things get messy. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> they aren't messy yet. Just for, for us moving forward, um, I identify as a sexual one. My dominant instinct is the sexual instinct. I prefer one-on-one relationships. I prefer intense conversations. I prefer engaging others one at a time even. So if I'm at a party, I have a very difficult time in a group of five in engaging that conversation. I much prefer turning to one person, having kind of a face-to-face interaction and then moving to the next person and then having a real interaction and then moving. And that's just how I socially do best. My wife is a social three. My wife walks into the room, very cool, understands how the dynamics of the room work as, you know, in the wider group and can can navigate conversations very quickly without feeling like she has to break off any conversation, but letting people know they're cared about, getting what she needs in terms of attention, moving from one person to the other. Mm-hmm. And TJ is a self-preserving nine. When you're at a party, how does your social energy work? Uh, it kind of depends a lot on what the party is, uh, because there there are certain situations where I'm I'm really great in a group, and there are other situations where I kind of just want to watch. But it's all about protecting my own sense of peace. Like I I love being in debates so long as I'm not invested in the outcome. I love being part of a like I I like parties so long as. I know how to navigate that space. All of it, all of the way that I interact with other people is about protecting my own peace. And and like this space is about me. And so when I go to an event, it might be the case that I sit back and watch because I don't know anybody. Like every single time I go to a staff event with my wife who is a teacher at a high school, I know three other people there and two of them don't ever come to those events. So I don't (laughs) ever interact with, I'm just sort of like following her around and nodding and kind of listening. But really I'm just trying to protect my peace because I don't know these people. I don't want to talk about education. I don't know how their jobs work. It's not my space. I'm just there to support my wife and protect my peace. (laughs) So in, in all situations, like where this, self-preservation is dominant. It's about protecting my peace and the space around me. In like manner, I suppose to circle back when I'm, so my wife also is a teacher. When I go to those same sort of parties, I'm just looking for somebody who's interesting, who wants to talk about depthier things. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I will intentionally ask kind of questions and oftentimes people will move on very quickly from me and my depthy question. Uh, Cause just like, yeah, that's come on, man, this is a party. Well, it's a, that's, that's exactly. I, I'll ask them about their work and they'll tell me, man, I'm at a party. i don't want to talk about work, uh, et cetera. Yeah. But occasionally I'll find the person who really does want to talk about something intense. And we'll, I'll be there for, for 45 minutes there in the corner talking about the thing they're interested in and perhaps how to improve the world, how to improve them. These are things 
that I get excited about, how to improve their business, what, how to improve their teaching, whatever needs a little bit of work, I'm there for it. <laughs> and that's how my oneness is expressed. That makes sense. Yeah. I suppose it's the case when my wife on the social front goes to those same parties. She wants to make sure that everybody sees, you know, whatever she is, has brought that is worthy of praise. There's something that, that has been uh, gifted to that environment that she's going to elevate. She's generally very servant-hearted, but is is just making making the rounds and generally finding those places of of greatest you know attention, as it were, right. in, in those spaces. She is not a wallflower, right? And and she also is gonna she she sort of flits around to make sure she hits as many people as possible. Yep, and and it's all going to be surface level, right? Yeah, and it's all going to be also, I suppose, on the social front, an investment. In, in those folks. Mm. Um, she is investing in the wider group because sometime in the future, things might go badly. Right. And they're the ones that she's going to need to rely on right. for uh, whatever she, she needs in those right. spaces. And that's how I think a lot of social types work. So that's talking about our dominant instinct. Now, here's the thing. I'm a sexual one. I prefer one-on-one conversations, but I often have to go into social settings with lots of people around a, like a boardroom table or something. And there's lots of times where I'm by myself and I need to think about my bank account, my resources and my energy and, and focus on my life as well. My primary social energy, I would prefer to have those one-on-one relationships, but then I have a secondary and you know, those other, those other two instincts need to find their place in my life as well. So this is where things get messy, is that Enneagram theory generally is going to say something like you have a dominant instinct, you have a secondary instinct, and you have something that's like a repressed or a weak instinct. Riso and Hudson call this the blind spot. Beatrice Chestnut calls this a repressed instinct. My, my gut here is that it's not repressed, but that it's just really weak. And uh, however it is, one of these places, one of these instincts is lowest. So for me, my lowest instinct, the thing I'm least comfortable with, is social. Put me around a table with eight people having a conversation, and I can't pull somebody to the side to talk to them one-on-one, and I generally don't thrive in those spaces. Right. And that would be the image. Do you know what you're repressed uh, or blind spot? I don't, because I actually have a different theory about this. Yes. Um, I think there there is a lot of information, and and again, this is muddy. Like it, it just it's messy because you get this deep into it, and then there's like nine people who have thought this hard about it, and all of us view it a little bit differently. So <laughs> so my my theory is is less about uh, there being a a repressed one. Our, our good friend, Sean Palmer, a friend of the podcast, and he's written a handful of books, and a couple of them have to do with the Enneagram. Uh, in his book, uh, 40 Days on Being a Three, he in the intro, he talks about subtypes being sort of like levels of a house. So uh, I live, uh, imagine a three-level house. You spend most of your time on the main level because that's where the kitchen and the living room is. This is where you sort of like do your thing. But when you need to go to sleep, you go upstairs to where the bedroom is. This isn't where you spend most of your time, but that is a very important space where something important happens. 
And when you need to do laundry, you go down to the basement because that's where the laundry room is. And this is, this isn't where you live. This isn't where you spend most of your time, but there is something very important that you have to do and you can only do it in this space. And so for me, the, I, I think that it's more like, like maybe there's a stack, but it's more like you get, you have like a dominant one and then you use all of them in specific settings. It's like when I'm at work, which my job is to be, is to create space for other people. I am, I am much more easily drawing on my social instinct because I, it's not about my piece now. It's about the group's piece. It's about the space that I'm creating for the people that are coming into my business. And when I'm with my spouse and like we're making big decisions, having hard conversations, this is not about my piece. It is about the piece of our relationship and our household. Like so, so it's much easier to draw on the sexual energy there when I'm navigating those specific situations. So I, I really love that metaphor of, of the house. I, I think it's, it's a great way to understand how I think about this because I, I, I don't think it's a stack. I don't think I have one that's repressed. Maybe one that I use less than others, but I don't know that it's necessarily to a detriment, if that makes sense. I think that's excellent. And I think I would, I would go closer to that way of thinking about the relationships of these as well. Um, when you get into Myers-Briggs, another personality typing system, it's going to ask you questions, and there's almost going to be levels of intensity. So mm -hmm. one of the first is introvert, extrovert. Some of us are really high on the introvert side or really high on the extrovert side. Some of us are kind of more in the middle. Right. And it feels to me like our instincts are of that sort. So I like right. Okay. the house image on this front. Like I, I kind of live in this space, but I can go to these spaces. Mm -hmm. For me, social environments around the table is like going into the creepy basement with all the spiders. Right. And your laundry room isn't down there. There's nothing down there except for storage. Right. So you don't use that room very often. Don't use it very often. Yeah. Or I haven't, or, or even, the, it may be the case that some of us kind of even avoid mm -hmm. said rooms right. if as, as much as we can. So this was, I've used this illustration a handful of times, but my wife doesn't, who is a social three, really does not enjoy one-on-one -on -one coffee dates. Right. And it's, it's, it's more of a, this is a energy suck for the most part with most people. Mm -hmm. So, um, and maybe that's it. It's, it's uh, what, <laughs> the laundry room is a place of real work, <laughs> you know, or, uh, or but I, I think that side room, the side room can be a place of fear. It could be... Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff yeah. you could say about how the room metaphor works in terms of these instincts. Um, just a quick footnote for those who do prefer the stacking or sequencing way of thinking about instincts. This is where the idea of 27 types comes in. Mm -hmm. Or if you have a if you have a dominant, a secondary, and a repressed. If you have the stack then the way they're arranged would actually create 54 different types. Right. And so if you ever hear language of 27 types or 54 types, that's where that's coming from. It's how do our instincts kind of find their, find their place. And then I think, I, I think one, uh, one of the early adopters, was it Naranjo, that wants to say, and then you throw the wings in there and it doubles again. Now it's, now it's 108. 
Right. So for me, and I think this is true, TJ, as well, I don't know that our instincts are our type. It's better to think of them as tools, as rooms that mm-hmm. we can utilize. Uh, and so to our wings. We, we haven't done a, a, a deep dive into wings, but we see wings as tools and not part of our type. Right. Agreed. Big question then, I suppose, is now that you know you have these elements to your personality, you have a dominant instinct, perhaps. Uh, how should you think about it, work on it, elevate it? I could actually, I, I was going to go to the practical use, but this might be a good place to talk about whether or not your instinct changes, your dominant instinct changes. Hmm. Am I wrong? Sure, we could talk about that now. Can you change your dominant instinct? How do you work yeah. on it? Can you change it? If you've typed yourself and you say, I'm a sexual one, you know, can your subtype change? This is one of the great uh, reasons to not think that your instincts are part of your type. Because right. if your instincts are part of your type, then of course you wouldn't, have, your type wouldn't change. Your right. type is kind of, I suppose in the way that we use the language of type, type is your pre-wiring. That's, this is who you are at your core and through which you engage the world and relationships and everything else. Right. Um, but we've, we have lots of stories of folks who in the midst generally of tragedies or real hardship find that they have to move from one they have to make a new room dominant is that's really what happens isn't it i was living in the living room for the last 20 years but now i've really found that now i need to move into the bedroom because you know i'm needing to care for a sick person or something right you know, the subtype changes. Right. Um, so the most, you want to tell the Suzanne story on this one? Yeah. Suzanne Stabile uh, is one of the world's best teachers on, on all things Enneagram. And she tells a story about uh, she uh, was teaching in, I'll say Houston, Austin, some city that's not Dallas. That's four hours away from Dallas. And while she was teaching, her daughters were there with her. Her husband, who was in Dallas, had a heart attack. And, like, they basically, like, got her off a stage. They got in the car and started driving. They drove four hours from wherever they were to Dallas. And over the course of that drive, her subtype changed. She was a social two. And by the time they arrived at the hospital where her husband was, she became, she had become a sexual two. And that, you know, that's a thing that matters that they had been married for many, many years. And after that, they had to go to therapy to deal with this, to figure out that her subtype had changed and to deal with the ramifications of that because it affected their relationship so significantly. Like basically she, she, all of her energy was about getting her primary motivation from her husband now, where it was about getting it from the group before. And and now she was driving her husband crazy. And so she had to, they had to work on this and learn their new dynamic because over the course of that four hours, her subtype changed. I think the move towards the sexual bonding instinct often will happen with a personal event. If somebody really experiences a change, it's going to be something like that. The, the person you love most is very sick mm. and you move and maybe suddenly sick or you um or you have a baby the birth of a child requires a new sort of bonding 
energy, this one-on-one energy that that suddenly arises. Sure. Uh, or even a marriage, like you get married and you move across the country. That one-on-one energy is going to be the only place you're going to live to get your motive fulfilled there for, right. for perhaps. And I can see that being like I'm living in this room now. Um, a different kind of event would be something that pushes us towards self-preservation. And we've talked about this a handful of times that a lot of people we know or people or maybe you yourself move towards self-preservation during COVID. Mm-hmm. That there's a global event. So this isn't a personal event. This is like all the things are shattering. Right. The world is not a safe place. Right. And so I'm going to move. So my oldest child is convinced that they moved from a sexual subtype to a self-preserving subtype mm-hmm. and has routinely used this as an excuse for bad behavior. But let's set that aside for a second. The, also, they're a teenager, so that, that part makes sense. <laughs> the, the, the movement here of really emphasizing with one's social energy, I need to take care of my, myself first, would make a ton of sense given how COVID affected so many of us. Right. You got thoughts? Right. And, and in general, like this is, um, this is a theory that we actually heard from, again, from Suzanne in, in the first place. But the, the idea of, of something like a, a global event changing your subtype, that it, it kind of just, it makes sense that like everything is different from before to now, like the, the world has changed and it makes sense that we would all come out of it changed as well. And when, when we're put in these kinds of situations where like we go to work every day, we see these people all the time. We like all of these things happen and they're normal. And then all of a sudden we're not going anywhere. We're not seeing people. We're not interacting with people in the same way. Our energy, how we spend that energy is probably going to change. It just like just logically, it just makes sense that this is how this would happen. Thinking much more about our bodies, our finances, our going to take care of myself first, and then through that, take care of my motive. Right, right. The movement towards social energy also, I think, can come about in very dramatic ways. And the two big illustrations that come to my mind are the beginning of World War II and 9-11. Mm, sure. We rallied. Uh, a lot of, of us who were adults at the time ended up having an experience where it was, okay, we need to do this together. And it was almost like we were pushed into a common identity. And I see this m- much more than 9-11. I see it much more with World War II that it was like, you know, if I was a sexual subtype, I don't need to necessarily have the one-on-one conversation. I need to get part of a team because we're rallying. We need to defeat global fascism. We're all in this together. Mm-hmm. And so the energy is different. The perspective is different. The thing that's most important and on the hot plate in front of us is we're being put into um, platoons of people, you know, building things or going to fight or, you know, whatever it is. It's it's now this very social event. Right. And now I'm living in that room. I'm flying overseas, but I'm flying overseas with these 80 other guys. Right. And I could see that. So it's more the communal event that has that power. I feel that way with when I've experienced local sports teams. So I'm a Denver Bronco fan. When the Broncos have won the Super Bowl, when I go to a football game, I'm not there to have a one-on-one conversation with anyone. That's good. You know, I'm there Everyone's to be part grateful of. grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy. <laughs> I, that's the guy you avoid. He's 
He's got mm-hmm. two beers in hand. He wants to talk to you about the things. No, you're there to have have the big uh, experience with lots of other folks. Right. High five everybody in uh, that you can. You know, right. in in section double A. You know, <laughs> row L or whatever. And that's one of the that's one of the things that makes the World Cup so fascinating is that like ev- yeah. everyone in the world and and finally the US is catching up to this everyone in the world is is partaking in the same event it's the same thing with the Olympics it's mm-hmm. there is a sense of usness that didn't exist 2 weeks ago you know and and like thinking about your bringing up the uh, beginning of World War 2 and 911 I I have nothing to say about the beginning of World War II because I don't care about history, but and I wasn't alive then. Uh, but I remember 9-11. I remember how quickly and easily, uh, not necessarily a good thing, but easily, it became all of America versus anyone in a turban. Like, like we just, like, we became, like, the whole group became a little bit racist very quickly. And uh, like the, it was a communal event that be a- and, and it was about protecting us, protecting the group against the them. But there was a really intense communal nature to how that happened. That might be an interesting element to this with because you can see it both in 9-11 and in the World Cup that there's there are some hands that go up and say, whoa, whoa, wait, you know, human rights abuses right. in Qatar. Right. Um, or whoa, 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 wait. You do realize that, you know, 120 Muslims died in those buildings because that's where they worked and they uh, were were American citizens and they matter, too. Right. Um, I'm not sure how that works in terms of the social instinct. Well, I think this this ties back into the uh, the initial question that started this that launched this particular topic was like, how, how do you work on your dominant instinct? Like what? What? Mm-hmm. What do you do to work on your dominant instinct? And and I think the most important answer is is you be aware of it. You be aware of how it changes, how it unconsciously moves you and and directs your energy. And when a global event happens, and now all of a sudden you're you're redefining what us means, maybe you should focus a little bit about. On, on the reality that your subtype might have moved to a social subtype and now you're defining us in a particular way. And, and the way your energy is being spent is about protecting the group and this is how you've defined the group. And maybe that means that you need to become better at defining the group. I suppose, yeah, as you're talking, maybe this is a good way to say, you know, your social energy is going to go up and then notice your motive comes into play. Right. So you're going to be aware of of conflict and how that can be not a good thing. It's right. uh, like I, I heard a, a strong critique of the, you know, the more racist elements that, that appeared after 9-11, which were clearly there. Mm-hmm. And I imagine your nineness, your radar for justice you're wanting to keep things together pops up and and also to see both sides to see to see the perspective of the faithful muslim who is not a a radical who is being blamed for something that happened without their knowledge or experience and 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 now they're 
they're all of a sudden part of them or affirmation. Yeah. 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 And, and, and being able to see that perspective like that, that comes out of, of my primary motive is that I want things to go well. I want things to be peaceful and the social, like now that this thing has happened and sort of moved me into a social subtype or a social instinct, I need to redefine what, us means mm-hmm. to make sure that it includes people who deserve to be included in that. Yeah. When you're part of the big room and yeah. And, and there's a lot of energy from, from all the, the, the crew that you're part of, mm-hmm. you have a place, you have a role in that. Yeah. That's good. Right. That I think in terms of does your subtype change is real helpful. Cause what it really is again, is it the, it's like the energy can shift into those three different spaces based on world events, communal events, personal tragedies, those can really alter where we really invest a lot of ourselves. Right. Or perhaps like for my, myself, I'm an academic ac- academics end up, you know, you go to, to school and a school, uh, grad school in particular can be a very isolating experience mm-hmm. because you have your topic and you're focused on that topic and you're be you'd like uh, you're encouraged to become the expert in the world on the thing you're focused on and that'll take two or three years of you in your basement you know hammering out the things that you're gonna um publish on and then for me then you get a job but the job i ended up going into was very communal in nature so started a church started organizing a church, started pulling people together. Those are two very different experiences of studying something by myself for a few years and then suddenly being thrust into, in order to thrive, you need to become more social. Mm -hmm. And man, and you know, it's like saying, Hey, uh, you've been in your basement, uh, 12 hours a day. Now you're going to go run a marathon. And it's like, okay, right now you know <laughs> i don't even have shoes i need to build up some muscles for this sucker <laughs> and that's and that was my experience of of doing you know some of the work that i was doing is i don't have the social skills that i did have i think i had much more social skills like in high school mm-hmm. but in in college those kind of went away given cuz i really got into academics right so building up the muscles i think this is it, transitioning here that seems to be me to be the thing we're talking about is once you understand instincts and and subtypes as it were it's really identifying your strengths identifying your weaknesses enneagram's a tool yep do you do you want to do work on this then great here's here's work that you can do be aware of it and start observing how it affects your life, how it changes, like what settings it changes in, and and then start start building on things that that need work. This is a place I would love your opinion because on one side, Enneagram says you you know, you want to create some balance. Shoring up your weaknesses isn't a bad thing, but my favorite elements of Enneagram is pushing into your strengths and really identifying your strengths. Mm-hmm. And just to float this, you'll be familiar with my wife, but, <laughs> but, but, but uh, listeners may not. Um, my transition vocationally seems to really play out along these lines of being in a job where I really had to have, in order to succeed, in order to thrive, I needed to have a really strong set of 
social skills, social intelligence, if my social instinct was built up, that would have been really great. And I found that that's really the place that I'm weakest, even feel uh, occasional anxiety in those spaces. Mm -hmm. My real strength is the one-on-one sort of relationships. And what has ended up happening for me vocationally is I've moved from two very social jobs to a job where nearly everything I do is one-on-one and it feels really easy and I don't feel like I'm working, but I'm actually (laughs) getting a lot of stuff done. I've I've like had to kick myself a handful of times and saying, you know, uh, what? I mean, just because this is easy doesn't mean that it's not work. Right. Because I'm knocking out my work in two or three hours a day as opposed to before where it was just, oh, man, I got to prepare for for to meet with all these folks and do this thing and interact with these people that treat you like crap and so what is what's the what's the wisdom here between (laughs) identifying weaknesses identifying strengths i think this this when i come to subtypes i think this is the primary question for me right now yeah well i think uh Answering your question specifically, but trying to do it in a broader kind of way. Like, I I think there's, it's really important for us all to remember that our type is primary. Our, our Enneagram number is primary. And, and for an Enneagram one, all situations are going to be filtered through that primary motivation. And so the fact that you think that you're not working hard enough in, in what you're doing now is part of your primary motivation. You identify yourself with your work and everything should be moving toward better completion. And, and like, there's always something to improve. And if it's easy, then you're probably not doing it right. Right. And that has nothing to do with subtype. That's just oneness. But then you add in this other stuff where your pri- your previous work, the these social kinds of settings, like the the like meeting with the 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 teams and and all of these other things that were a real struggle for you, and now that those struggles are gone and it just doesn't feel like like being aware that your subtype is playing a role in this is really good and also should be something that you can focus on because if you listener if you find yourself in a situation like similar to Jeff where like these things changed and now it doesn't feel right but it should part of that may have to do with you're just so used to it being harder than it should be and and focusing on that on focusing on the fact that your old vocation required energy from you that you weren't good at giving and now you don't have to give that anymore, that doesn't mean what you're doing now is wrong. That actually means what you're doing now is right and what you were doing before was wrong. And Or, or didn't play to my natural strengths. Yeah, I sure. Is where yeah. more at. The, like I would love to be a more socially intelligent person in the midst of the group and lead team meetings and such. It's just not... I'm not the person you want to hand the microphone to most of the time in those spaces. Right. And, and, Um, and being aware of that. And, and this is a good life lesson to know, like when you get into scenarios in the future where you are part of the group and there is some kind of leadership on your shoulders, maybe because you know this about yourself, you can hand the leading of that group off to someone else. Right. And because you know that you're not good at that part. 
Exactly right. Yeah, the, I've already mentioned it, but the flip side to that is watching my wife really navigate well, very social settings, but she also is a professor and she has office hours in mm-hmm. which she's has to meet with students one-on-one. And this is one of the, the places in her job that she really doesn't like. Right. You know? Um, Not that she and, doesn't like her students. She doesn't like having to meet one-on-one with them. Right. <laughs> because that's going to be, it's going to be a suck. It's not going to be efficient. It's going to be a lot of their story. It's going to push into places that just isn't, isn't her wheelhouse. Right. Being able to name that real valuable. Right. Tra- trying to create one of the things we were just talking about yesterday, as I was telling her what we were talking through was that she needs to, you know, meet with 20 students one-on-one to, you know, to what, to do their counseling, like here are the classes that you need to take in order to get a history ed. Right. Right. Major. Right. And she oversees history education. And just saying, if you got five of them in the same room at the same time, would that be more helpful? And that was like, that was like a click, like, well, of course it would be. Sure. You know, cause then she's pushing into her social, her natural social skills and, and leading the room as it were. Right. And not having to do the one-on-one work. Right. And that would just be an example of like, I know who I am, I know where my strengths are, my weaknesses are, or what in, in, in just pivoting such that I push into my strengths. Mm-hmm. I think that was worthwhile. Yeah. How does that work? For, so for those of you who don't know, TJ is a very successful leader of, of a, a wonderful staff uh, at the, the coffee shop that he owns. How do you think about your social energy in re- regarding your staff coming from a self-preservation point? Well, I, I actually, part of why I have struggled with this topic of instincts or, or subtypes for so long is because I feel like when I'm at home, I'm self-preservation. And when I'm a, with my staff, I'm uh, sexual. And when I'm with the group, I'm social. So uh, it, it's, it's difficult for me to say that this is an area that I struggle with because I feel like I, I actually do navigate that pretty naturally well. But there are a lot of times where I, I avoid it because I would rather not have hard conversations or, um, or whatever. Like, like the, the primary thing for me is, is about protecting the peace. And so when the thing that I have to do is not going to protect the peace, that's, that's where it becomes a struggle for me. So, um, so navigating like individual conversations with staff navigating, uh, like the, the creating space for the group, knowing that my primary is self-preservation is to remember that like, it's my job to, lead this group it is and they don't have jobs unless I do that work and so pushing into to that like because it's not about me that's that's kind of what it comes down to at the end of the day is when when I have to push into these uncomfortable more uncomfortable kinds of situations it's not about me it's about them it's about the people that they work with it's about my customers it's about whatever else it at the end of the day, it's not about me, and that's what I have to push into. The thing that has really been, and, and maybe it's just because, you know, COVID, a lot of us, we probably need to talk at some point about the Enneagram post-COVID, as, as post as you can get. I realize we're not post, <laughs> but especially especially for, for our listeners who are not stateside, uh, some, some countries are really still struggling. Right. 
a lot of us, you know, lost our jobs during COVID or lost our health during COVID and, and like are really had downtime to regroup, refashion, rethink, you know, what's my life going to be about? One, I don't know if this plays into the quick intro to the subtypes, <laughs> but um, I heard a guy talking the other day that pitched a mantra that really hit me on and it, and it, it's relevant here. He said, it's terrible advice that a lot of folks give to, to young people that they should follow their passions or follow their bliss. Mm-hmm. It says what you should do is identify the place where you're really talented because the world really needs talented people. And in that sphere, you're going to find all sorts of things that you love. I found that really helpful. Yeah. But for me, like trying to regroup of all things, this element of Enneagram has really been what's shown out. It's the thing I really do well is improve things. And I really, really enjoy numbers. I really get into real estate. I really enjoy meeting one-on-one with people. And essentially the job I have fashioned out for myself, I'm an entrepreneur and I invest in real estate and I invest in you know other entrepreneurs who want to build great things. And all I do is come alongside them and talk to them one-on-one and ask them about their businesses and how they're going to be successful and just love the hell out of it. Pushes very much into my oneness, very much into my where my instincts, my one-on-one instinct, sexual instinct is strongest. I don't know if that works for others, but in terms of how do you use this material, that's working real well for me. I, I would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's... Um, I have very mixed feelings about the the follow your bliss teaching uh, as an elder millennial with with sort of a, a toe in Gen X and, you know, I'm a nine, so I can see all perspectives and blah, blah, blah. Like the, the idea of like making sure that you do what you love. I'm just surrounded by people my age and slightly younger that don't make any money because they're, they're refusing to get jobs that they don't like. And it's like, well, sometimes you got to do, not every job is perfect. There's lots of things about my work that I hate. And also find something that you can do like that's anyway uh the the idea of really focusing in on finding places where you can be successful and and not necessarily like this work is easy therefore i'm gonna be good at it It, most of us will not thrive well in in a place where we never have any kind of challenge and I, I think this this message, this this idea of knowing where these instincts push you and 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 move you and and sort of direct your focus and and your energy, that being able to to move into spaces where that flow is a little bit more natural, I think will be good. I think it it'll help you thrive and succeed and and you'll you'll still have scenarios where you have to draw in the other instincts where you have to, there's, there's just no whole person is going to be able to completely avoid being in social settings and sometimes being in, uh, self-preservation settings and sometimes being in one-on-one settings like that. That just, that's how living in a society works. That actually, I think finding others that complement your strengths. I have my wife who's social on one side, your self-pres on the other. The the self-preservation side, I find all sorts of wisdom for my self-pres friends 
who are able who have that as a kind of a primary filter through which what you know advice is given and a lot of your and I's conversations especially around relationships ends up being on this front mm. like you need to hold some of that back right. like i i have such a uh strong tendency just to to lavish myself for the sake of others it's not in that and that can get me in real trouble mm-hmm. on the flip side i have to meet in front of uh, what the city council to rezone a building here soon. I'm going to be terrible about that. I'm going to have the impulse of telling them how all their systems are just jacked up and they've <laughs> screwed up our whole process. This is nine months overdue. We could have, you could just change something in your computer and let us build some great stuff and that's not going to go well. So, <laughs> so Kelly and I are spending the next week coaching right. you, right? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm letting Kelly speak. I don't need to oh, speak. Good. Smart. I'm yeah. right. <laughs> Uh, there's there's other there some of the people that I'm working with one on one, who I know are social subtypes yeah. are likewise going to be there and they will speak on behalf of the other people who are occupying that building and okay. I can just sit there and smile and apologize to 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 Dwayne who I cussed out on the, other day on the phone. <laughs> just but you're going to so pull him to the side when you do that, right? Yes. Yeah. One on one, as exactly. it were. <laughs> Yeah, knowing that that this is something you have to work on is probably a good thing. You sh- should probably put yourself in situations where you do have to work on your social instinct. And a really, really important big city council meeting is probably not the place where you should experiment with that. Yeah, there you go. Because you know that you're yeah. not good in those settings. Truth. Yeah. One of the things that I've started to notice with other podcasters just is that the podcasts themselves are set up around their social instincts. So there's some mm-hmm. people who it's their show yeah. and they're the ones speaking advice into the microphone. Right. There's some guys, I re- people who do podcasts, I really love who are that person. And the more that I listen to them, I'm like, you're entirely, there's a self pres eight who I love the hell out of right now. Just him talking into a microphone. Yeah. Another set of folks uh, well, it's like it's our podcast. It's the it's two people bantering about whatever the topic is. Mm-hmm. Lots of intense energy about it. Yeah, propels the the podcast. Yep. Look at something like a. I mean, some some late night shows are that way. So like a Stephen Colbert. I'm gonna just talk one on one with this person, or you know. Um, but then like Bill Maher's show is more of a social. Right, right. We're it's getting a, all these people around the round table, or so like, that they can all yell at each other at the same time. Or are the morning shows like morning shows across the dial on on cable and major networks? Those mm-hmm. are all they get all the social people together right. and just the energy right. is bouncing in that way. Right, the view. Right, yeah. Those are good examples. I think those are good examples of like the this is how the person in their type what as as you said you know it's how your energy is spent getting to your motive. Last thing for me on this, I suppose, is the just to circle back to to it is you can use this in order to care for other people. Yeah. Because I think it is easier. I don't think there's anything wrong with naming people's instincts because it's actually, it's not typing people. So it's not breaking the rules (laughs) (laughs) because it's not, not part of their type as it were. If you know that somebody is that, you know, sexual bonding one-on-one desiring subtype, then loving them looks like entering those spaces, even when that's not your wheelhouse, especially when things are kind of rocky. Right. Um, so you may have a kid who just wants one-on-one 
attention time, and that's not your wheelhouse, but you loving your kid in that space is a big investment. Right. And 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 being aware that this is not your wheelhouse means that you can enter into it intentionally with work and and effort and 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 doing the work that is good for someone else as opposed to just sort of like floundering around in a space you don't know what you're doing. The awareness really helps. Understanding that somebody's self-preserving. Is is this giving people space across the board? Like it doesn't matter what your Enneagram type is. If you're a self-preserving type, is loving a self-preserving type understanding that they need more space? How, how does that work? Not necessarily. Um, I, I think it's, it's knowing that self-preserving types are thinking about their own comfort first, thinking about their own, like how their thing affects them first. Like that's, it's, it's not necessarily that uh, people who are self-preservation, preservation dominant are want to be alone. It's that their, their energy is spent on themselves first. And, and even in group settings in, in one-on-one conversations and in all of those spaces where, other things happen and, and other instincts sort of thrive. The, the self-preservation types are thinking about their, their energy is directed toward themselves first. And so knowing that about us, it makes it easier to understand why, why we behave the way that we do in, in some places. It, it might be the case that a lot of self-preservation types are wallflowers, but that's, I don't know that that's, because of self-preservation. I think it's because of other things. And yeah, just knowing that that's where the energy goes first is that's the thing that we need to know. I assume that loving self-preserving folks ends up having to do with ensuring that they have what they need, the resources that they need, the, the uh, as you were saying, the comforts they need. What is it that yeah. is most important to this person that they generally are just very aware of? Right, right. And, and like it, it, if I am a high level self-preservation dominant, like I don't really spend much time in the other two. If that's, that's how I am and how I navigate the world, then people who love me need to make sure that those things that I'm aiming for are taken care of so that I can spend the energy elsewhere. Yeah. So like, like if it's about, peace my 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 partner i think is is a self-preservation six and so she is mainly thinking about her own safety most of the time like that's how her energy is spent on her safety her security and if she is not if she does not feel comfortable if she does not feel like she knows what's going on and and can like navigate and make decisions then it affects everyone else it makes it harder for her to spend good energy on our family on our finances on whatever else needs to be done to because you know i need her energy i need her thinking about all of the things that are going to break because i don't think about those things but if she's only thinking about herself then she's not putting that energy into the other places so I can help her by providing some of that stuff for her so that she can put that energy elsewhere. On the flip side, if you have a social loved one, I imagine granting, even entering yourself into spaces where it's not just you and them, but it's we're, we're going to hang out with the crew, 
maximizing opportunities to to enjoy lots of people can be incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think even um, even coming into so like part of. W- we, we keep talking about how this is so messy and complicated. And, and I think one of the really significant parts of the social instinct is, is so much about the group and my place in the group, but also like putting, bringing that primary motivation to the group. Defining the group is different. So the social energy can be spent on a whole crowd of people. It can also be spent on just our nuclear family and knowing so so as someone who like like you with your social three spouse so much of how her energy is spent is not specifically about being social but it's and it's not necessarily about making kelly cook look great it's about our family's percept the the way that people perceive our family because the right. social energy is pointed at the us yep. so as someone who loves that person knowing that when they're doing things like like being really picky about how the house looks or how you dress or like whatever all of these things that could come out of a social type pointing their energy at their family it, it could sound like they're just being mean and controlling, but it could also be about that energy is specifically about the family and the success of that family. So again, with, with Kelly as an example, the knowing that like some of her parenting decisions, some of, some of the ways that she interacts with other people, so much about her life as a cook, as, as a member of your family, is about how your family looks. It's about the yeah. success of your family. Not no. just about her, about the whole family. Yeah, a big investment can be the three, the three you know, <laughs> smelly boys cleaning up and being show-offable mm-hmm. in social yeah. spaces. Yep. So, by the way, all of this, wait, I don't mean to just talk about myself, my family, my work and all the rest. Obviously, I'm coming to the subtype conversation from a point of, again, just jumping into it for the first time. If I had more wisdom around the circle, I would have given it to you. But this would be <laughs> a lot of times this is how we we learn. This is the narrative tradition in Enneagram. Right. You hear people's stories, how they're internalizing this stuff. And it's like, oh, OK, this is how it works for a social five you know, or the sexual seven in, and finding your anchor that can be very valuable. Right. On the other side of this is it's, you know, being self-aware. So starting with sexual subtypes, being self-aware that you come across hot can be incredibly valuable. Like I can kill people with one-on-one energy. Yeah. I just can. I can talk with one person for four hours if, mm-hmm. if, the, if there's the topic that I really enjoy. Right. So, and if I don't know that I'm like dragging people, you know, who might not have that same energy into a four hour conversation, it's, it's super important for me to know I need to, to, you know, everything with moderation, balance, right. just right. to <laughs> right. hold things loosely. Right. I assume that it's the same, however, for social subtypes and self-protective, self-preserving yeah, subtypes. Yeah, you brought up the example earlier of 
um, Kelly not being able to, to meet one-on-one like that, that is a real struggle for her. And, and knowing that about herself, uh, like any type of sec, of social person who struggles with the sexual aspect, you might have to have one on one meetings with some, with people sometimes. And can you can knowing about that and going into those settings, can you hand that work off to another person or can you like corral your energy to, to give the best that you have in this scenario, knowing that about yourself, this, this is something that you're going to have to enter into sometimes. Or I mean it, I suppose like I can imagine a social subtype who has people over to their house five times a week Mm -hmm. and this is, you know, others in their family are just like, seriously, I, I, I can't oh, sure. give right, this right. much energy out. Or the expectation, they're a social subtype. The excess. And, and they long to be with, with everybody at the bar every other night. And, right. But they're leaving, the, the finding the balance, yeah, that yeah. there is an excessive point to our instincts. Yep, yep. Yeah, and le- the self-preservation, only thinking about themselves first sometimes gets them in trouble because they're, they're part of a group and they need to be thinking about the group as, as a parent and as a spouse, I have to think about the family. It's not, and, and maybe that means I redefine who me is. Maybe I fold my family into that so that the, the energy is not going necessarily toward the relationship with the family, but, or, or even thinking about the family as a group but in order for me to be safe, I have to protect them. Like that, that might be work that I have to do in order to yeah. make sure that I'm being the best for them is remembering the excess that can, that can come out of self-preservation. Right. Yeah. There, the selfishness that that can look like to yep. everybody else. We have a friend who we'll call Joe and Joe takes care of Joe and we yep. all know Joe takes care of Joe and that can be, it's not always negative. Having, having self-preserving instincts can really be a benefit to your family right. at some levels right, or to your business or right. you know to your shop. Like TJ is one of the few coffee shops I imagine that sur- survived in our town that wasn't, owned by it by a green monstrosity the <laughs> because you have strong understanding about you know about holding down the fort and mm-hmm. and the rest yeah anyway those two elements i think how do i love people in their instinct and how do i understand my own instinct not burgeon not blowing up into excess uh, yep. that that strikes me as really helpful Everything in moderation. That's the only wisdom I have on on jumping into subtypes <laughs> and instincts. <laughs> you got any more in, instinctual, uh, subtypical insights? I I think that one thing that should be known, uh, and that the very end of this conversation may not be the best place for it, but here we are, and it's too late for me to just put <laughs> this in the beginning because I can't travel through time, but. Uh, I think this is also really good wisdom for the Enneagram in general, that this aspect, while, while there is a lot of good things that can come out of it, the fact that it makes everything so messy might be too much for some people, and there's nothing wrong with that. If all of this, if you listen to this whole thing and you're like, I don't care about any of that, that's fine. 
put it on a shelf and don't worry about it. You might come back to it someday when it actually does draw you in and, and it becomes something that you want to look into. And if you don't... Also, you're a masochist. You listen to this whole thing and then care. <laughs> right. Seriously. Uh, but the, I, I think this is this is one specific aspect of, of the Enneagram that I don't think needs the kind of attention or, or even necessarily offers the kind of value that other things like stance work does. Right. And if you never pick up subtypes again, I, I think that's fine. Um, because, because I, I think that focusing on your primary type and even, uh, in your intelligence centers, I think that's, that way more valuable and, and useful. And, um, there's a lot more work to be done there, um, where subtypes makes everything messy and it, it, it can do a lot of good, but it, it also might just make things harder. And I think if you don't want to, don't. That's totally fine. We, in fact, did a podcast series, which is convenient to find now Ooh. on exactly the steps that you should take when doing your, your Enneagram journey to steal somebody else's phrase. Uh, we, we have a podcast now called Start Here. TJ and I just put three series that we think is fantastic for people who are just jumping in to Enneagram. So if you have friends who who don't know their type but want to kind of jump in with you, our podcast is set up to be handed off. So if you just look up Start Here on the Spotify or iTunes, you can obviously share that with friends. First episode says this is how the podcast works. Second episode is let's find your type. And then it unfolds kind of like a book. Um, but the, the last seven episodes are our seven steps of how you should grow in your Enneagram knowledge and the things that we really think is, is the most valuable. And I can concur with TJ that subtypes, I don't think, I think it's fun. It's like yeah. wings. Yeah. It's, it's some of the, it's some of the stuff that may have some relevance, but, uh, tear into some of the other bigger stuff first. Yep. So, you know what else is going on? What? Through 2023, uh, we're going to be having our online gatherings, which you'll know about. Yeah. We're going to move those to just once a month so they feel a little bit more special, have a little bit more energy. You can register at aroundthecircle.org. Just click on events. You'll see a place to, to click on and, and register if you want to join us. Generally, 15 to 25 people show up and we talk about, I think it's the case that through 2023, we're going to start out talking about relationships we might just stick there. So Great. Um, I, I consistently am finding that that has a ton of energy in that space of talking about the relationships that we have, where we struggle, where things are successful, and, and different elements of the Enneagram and the wisdom it has for our relationships. So, uh, But speaking of events, physical events, you and I, it's crunch time now. It's coming. February 4th. Oh my gosh, it's so soon. February 4th, we have our annual one-day conference in Colorado. If you have any interest in, in coming, that's also at aroundthecircle.org. And just click on events and you'll see the links to all of that. Uh, this year, we're going to be talking about stress and security. And TJ and I have been saving up for many, many months all this fantastic gold. Going to bring the pain. Yeah, I'm really excited wonderful. about that. It's also the case if if our uh, podcast feed is kind of thin in January, it's because we're scrambling. Yeah, it's because <laughs> we, we have prep work to do. As always, the intro music here is by The Collection, and the great Brian Claxton is throwing down the jazz at the end. And if you love this podcast, one of the best things you can do 
Let's give us some stars on the iTunes or on Spotify. Helps people find the uh, the podcast. And uh, I suppose the best thing you could do is you could support us on Patreon. Uh, there's a handful. There's still we got like 13 people that are still plugging, uh, giving us some support on Patreon. Who are y'all are champs. Uh, we haven't even given anything out for free. Actually, no, I take this back. You want for if you would like free tickets to our February event, if you sponsor us on Patreon, I'll, I'll get you some free tickets. There you go. You're you're one of the twelve people that actually listened to the the outro to the end. You deserve <laughs> free tickets to our Colorado event. That's what I got. You got anything else, TJ? I got nothing, man. <laughs> it's TJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. I'm Jeff Cook. Who you aren't? isn't interesting. Be who you are. Let's set the world apart.